Would you look in your Bible at John chapter 6? Let me go ahead and read a section of Scripture for you. In John 6, in fact, I'll just read the section that we'll exposit from this morning. You remember in John chapter 6, he had fed the 5,000 men in 6, 1 through 15. Remember, he set them all down, and they had no bread and no fish, and then a boy brought the, the, the five crackers, in essence, and two fish, Certainly not like the fish that I was out deep sea fishing this week just one day and we pulled out some big fish and pulled out some fish. We probably took in, oh, over 200 pounds of fish and uh, some of those were very difficult to pull up. When, when the boy had five crackers, don't think of loaves, it was five flat crackers the size of a cracker, we would say, and the two fish were not two fish like this. They were sardines, if you will, almost relish, and Jesus multiplied that and did a phenomenal miracle. He fed 5,000 men, which sometimes we would say maybe likely up to fifteen to 20,000 people. And then you remember that right after that, he walked on water, and uh, he revealed himself to them. Look at 6.20. He said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then the crowds began, look at 22, on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away or gone alone, gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place that they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus, verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray as we dive into the Word of God. Father, we submit our exposition to you in 30 through 35 that we might be humble, that you might instruct us, that you might clarify in our minds and in our hearts as a church body the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, accomplish your work through the power of the Word, and we'll pray to that end in Christ's name. Amen. I was reading this week from... A friend who is a, a blogger, he's, he's on podcast, it's called No Compromise Radio, and he wrote a piece, it was interesting, on the recent death of Muhammad Ali, and so many people were 
paying tribute to Muhammad Ali and uh, whether it was the thriller in the Manila when he fought Joe Frazier or the rumble in the jungle when he fought another man by the name of George Foreman, Muhammad Ali was known for his self-proclaimed statement that I am the what? The greatest. I mean, a very humble man, was he not? I am the greatest, but the only one who could ever say that I am the greatest and in reality is the greatest is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, to the Jews of Jesus' day, the temple represented the worship of God. And yet Christ himself said of the temple that I tell you that something is greater than the temple is here. Speaking and referring to himself. Something greater than the temple is here. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, one of God's prophets by the name of Jonah was there. And Jonah was revered in the Jewish community. And of course, we knew he disobeyed. But nevertheless, he was a prophet of God that repented. And they held him in high esteem. And yet, Jesus said to that crowd, he said in 12, 6, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jesus said, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in Matthew 12, 41, King Solomon, as you know, and you think of his name, was known for his wisdom. And yet, here's what Jesus declared. He said, the men of Nineveh will uh, rise up, or excuse me, the queen, he said there, of the south will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it. For she came, speaking of that queen, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus said, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I mean, on through the scripture, you see this. In fact, in rabbinical teaching, the Jewish people viewed angels as the highest, next to, of course, the person of God. And yet the writer of Hebrews said in one three that after making purification of sins, speaking of Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so he's superior, is he not, to everybody and everything. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that he's superior to the angels because he is addressed by the Father as my son in Hebrews 1.3. Who else could that be said of? He is adored by angels in Hebrews 1.6 as the firstborn. The Greek word is prototokos. Out of all those who were born, Jesus Christ is first place. And of course, he eternally existed, as John 1 said. But he is anointed by the angels as the firstborn. He is anointed by the Father as a king in Hebrews 1.7-9. He is addressed by the Father as God in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. He is addressed by the Father as Lord, 
in Hebrews 1.10, he is ascribed by the Father to be the one who gave the divine act of creation in Hebrews 1.10. He's ascribed by the Father the attribute of immutability, which means he does not change. He's ascribed the divine attribute by God of the eternality that God shares. So clearly, he's superior to the angels. In fact, as you look on in the word of God, God raised up Moses to lead uh, the Jewish people out of slavery. Yet Jesus is greater than Moses. For it says in Hebrews 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And it says there, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were spoken later. But then it says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So listen, Jesus is greater than the temple. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses, truly, and only it can be said of him. He is the greatest. And so as you hold your Bible, we come to that famous discourse on Jesus being the bread of life. And this passage is placed strategically here by the Apostle John that we might see clearly the person of Christ, that we would believe on him. Now, as I mentioned, he has fed the 5,000. He walked on water. Look what Jesus said again in 626. He said, truly I say to you, or truly, truly, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves. In other words, they saw the signs that he performed, and it's plural, but they failed to recognize that the signs pointed to Christ. And so they wanted to know what they were to do. Look down at 629. Jesus said there, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Very clearly, as we looked some weeks back, the work of God is to place your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And it's in the present tense here to continually believe on him. But the question that could be asked, at least from portions of this exposition, or certainly all of it, is why is he the greatest? Why? Now certainly we've been discovering that in the Gospel of John. But as you sit underneath the Word of God as it comes to us, why is Jesus Christ the greatest? And what I want to do in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 35, is look at three declarations that point to one grand truth regarding the truth of Jesus Christ, okay? There's three declarations that point to one grand truth regarding the person of Jesus Christ. The first declaration is the demand for a sign, and then we'll look at that. Then secondly, I want to look at that second declaration, which is the development of Scripture by the Lord Jesus Christ in 32 through 34. And then finally, and most importantly, is the third declaration, the disclosure of the Savior. Okay? We'll look at the demand for a sign, 
the development of the Scripture and the disclosure of the Savior. But let's look at these declarations. Here's the first declaration, and it's found in verse 30 and 31. It's the demand for a sign. Look down again at verse 30. So they said to him, the Jewish people is what we're thinking, is the they, there's the ones that followed him all the way across. They said this to him in verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Stop there just for a moment. They demand a sign, which is a little bit hard to believe as we crawl into this passage again. He had just uh, a day earlier fed 5,000 men, or we like to say roughly 20,000 people. And they have the audacity to ask him for another sign. That's what it says there in verse 30. They had just witnessed that or certainly heard about that. What sign do you do that we may see you and believe in you? In fact, the the feeding of the 5,000 men was more than sufficient to reveal his identity, and in this case, as God in the flesh. But they want another sign. Look back in the Word of God at chapter 6 and verse 2. It tells us there, as he led into the feeding of the 5,000, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You'll note there, they didn't just see the sign. They saw the signs plural, that he was doing on the sick. They had been witnessing sign after sign or miracle after miracle. Glance down in your Bible. We've read it just a bit earlier at 626. Jesus said to them, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, there it is again, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I mean, certainly one would think that the feeding of the 5,000 men was enough. In fact, it led, did it not, to the speculation that the great prophet had arrived and they desired to make him king. In fact, look back at chapter 6 and verse 14. After he fed that great multitude in 614, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so he was performing these signs. They thought maybe this is the prophet that was foretold and they were about ready to make him the king. Beloved, the simple truth is this, that the miracles or the signs point to the greater truth. The miracle itself is a sign and the purpose of the sign is to reveal the person of Christ. But sadly, how that's inverted today. Sadly, how so many people will seek out these faith healers for the miracle itself. Whenever you find the miracles and the signs in the Word of God, they lead you to the greater truth, and the greater truth is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They failed to see what the signs pointed to, and that was Christ. I mean, this is what we see in the Word of God. The Jews said to him, back in John 2, 18, what sign do you show us for these things that you are doing? 
And he kept performing sign after sign. In John chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus said to the people, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. They cowered after these miracles, if you will. They wanted them. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And I would say it is so today in our own day. People want the miraculous. They want to see the miraculous, even though he's revealed himself time and time again. It says in Mark 8, 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven in order to test him. You remember in the New Testament, in the epistle of Corinthians, in 122, it says the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. So what they're saying to Jesus here in verse 30 is this, give us a repeat performance. Do it again, if you will. We know you just fed those people. Remember, that crowd gathered not because they saw him clearly, but they wanted him to do another miracle. And now what they want is do another repeat performance. They want another sign. Now, in order to back up their claim and their demand for a sign, they get a bit spiritual. You say, how so, Pastor Scott? They quote the Scripture. You say they do? Yeah, look down in verse 31. They quote the Scripture. They said to Jesus there that our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, they're quoting scripture, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now we best think that that is a text in Psalm 78, 24, whereas you can see it there, that he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. So in other words, they're looking back to that point. You can look at that on your own in Exodus 16, whereas they were wandering and they had fled from Egypt for 40 years, if you will. He rained down on them, manna to eat, and gave them the grain of heaven. And we believe that what the Jews were saying here is that the miracle Moses performed in giving the manna and providing the manna, Jesus, was much larger than your feeding. To really believe Jesus, they're thinking that they would need to see him feed the entire nation of Israel, because after all, isn't this what God did for Israel in the wilderness when they wandered for 40 years, according to Exodus 16? Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, then do something that Moses did. Feed All of us. Or maybe it went something like this. Jesus, outdo Moses. Perform an even more dramatic miracle than Moses did. In fact, Jesus, he fed millions. And he not only did it once, right? He did it six days a week for how long? 40 years. So here's the demand for a sign. When you begin, beloved, to add to this that the later uh, rabbis argued that the Messiah, who was called in their thinking the latter Redeemer, would call down manna from heaven as did the first Redeemer. That's in their writing. In other words, if Jesus is really the Messiah, 
perform another sign. Give us permanent bread. It would be like the woman at the well who said, give me a drink of this water so that I don't have to keep coming to this well and keep dipping. Give us that food that we can just, you know, depend upon you every day. So they demand a sign, but it leads quickly into a second declaration, okay? A second declaration. And the second declaration is moving from the demand for a sign is the development of the scripture. Jesus is going to develop the scripture. We love the word of God. And Jesus was the word of God. And so look what he says to them after their demand. Look at 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He's going to develop the scripture here. Now, he makes this statement, and we've seen it before. Truly, truly, I say to you. Beloved, this is an incredibly strong statement in the Greek. It's like, listen up. Listen here. And and whenever it's stated, it's done so with emphasis. And what our Lord does, interestingly, is correct their erroneous demand with three descriptive truths. Isn't it interesting? He never capitulates to untruth. Today, most church leaders would never want a problem in their church. And they'd rather capitulate so they don't ever offend anyone. But not Jesus. He's going to gently, but he's going to directly, if you will, correct them. He's going to develop the scripture and correct their erroneous demands with three descriptive truths. Here's the first truth, and we'll move quickly on this, is the truth about source. The truth about source. Look at again, look again at the text in 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread of heaven. In other words, there's a truth about source. The, the bread that came down in Exodus 16 and fed them The source was not Moses. The source was God the Father. He gave you the bread, not Moses. God supplied the bread. I mean, just look at this statement here up on the screen in Exodus 16, 4, and then verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may Test them. Stop there just for a second. Remember the first time they did it and somebody took more than they needed and they didn't rest on the seventh day, all that food spoiled. He was testing them. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread. Here's the statement that the Lord has given you to eat. I mean, make no mistake about it. It wasn't Moses who gave them the bread. It was the Lord who has given them the bread that you may eat. And this is not the only scripture. Look at the next slide. In the book of Nehemiah, it will tell us the same thing. You, speaking of God the Father, gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You gave them the bread. In other words, Moses might have been the channel. 
But God the Father is the source. Psalm 78, and this is where we believe they're quoting. Yet he commanded the skies above, opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. And still one more in Psalm 105. You'll see this truth. They asked, and he brought quail, and he gave them bread from heaven in abundance. So the first thing he does in the development of the scripture is he corrects them, and he gives them the correct truth about source. It was not Moses. It was God the Father. But he gives them a second correction in the development of scripture. And beloved, I would just say to you, um, you can see how important the scripture is. I mean, you get a little iota wrong, it's wrong. You, in other words, you get a little diphthong on a word wrong. It, it, in other words, all these things matter. What God has said is true. He gave them bread, not Moses. And so it seems like a little bit of a side secondary issue, but it's important to the Lord here to correct them first on the truth about source. Secondly, the second correction in the development of Scripture is the truth about relationship. And I'm just touching on these. Look at verse 32. He said, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Watch this. But my, look at this phrase, my father gives you. Stop there just a second. It's a truth about relationship. Jesus calls God the Father, my Father. And he identifies God as my Father, making himself and his relationship with God the defining expression of God. And so he corrects them about this truth about relationship. And I don't want to strain the gnat with you, but look at verse 33, or excuse me, 32. But my Father, do you see that? You could even underline this, gives you. Now, you'll note there that he did not say my father, which would have been hard for the Jews to think that God the Father was his own father, but that is the truth of the word of God in the triune relationship. But he says, my father gives you. And it's put in the present tense, meaning this, that he not only supplied the the bread in the past, he's presently giving you the bread of God. In other words, this is not just a past event. God, my Father, is giving you now the true bread, the real bread, the true bread that overshadows that which was in the Old Testament. You say, well, in what sense? Well, look on. Look down at verse 33. He develops this point. He said there, for the bread of God, watch this statement, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What a statement. And so he makes a third truth here. He's got a truth about source, a truth about relationship. And here's the third truth. It's the truth about bread. Now now look at it closely. It is the true bread of God. And the true bread of God, beloved, in the word of God is not physical in nature. The true bread of God is bound up in a person. And here, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, look at the text again in verse 33. For the bread of God, watch this, is he who comes down from heaven. Now, stop there just for a second. John's revealing a great theology here. He's talking about the doctrine of the incarnation. 
In other words, the God who provided bread from heaven is now providing bread in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to make little out of this point that he came down from heaven because that is what the scripture declares. And it's important to Jesus, and I'll show you why. Look again down in your Bible at 638. Jesus said there, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, he came down from heaven because he is of heavenly origin. Oh, yes, he was born in Bethlehem. We understand that. But that which was born was the one who came down from heaven in the incarnation. And here, again, it speaks of his heavenly origin. Look at verse 41. It says there that the Jews grumbled about him. Why? Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In other words, it bothered them because they knew that he was declaring a heavenly origin there. Look at chapter 6, the next verse in verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Look down at verse 50. This, Jesus said, is the bread or that comes down, or John says, from heaven so that uh, one may eat of it and not die. Look down at 658. This is the bread that came down from heaven. In other words, he has heavenly origin. This is a statement regarding the incarnation of Jesus Christ and all of his life. He is not a created being. He is the eternal son of God. In fact, look back just for a few chapters. Do you remember this? John chapter 3. Look back to John chapter 3 and verse 13. Here, Jesus said in 3.13 that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, defined there as the Son of Man. You know, I just, I told you when we got to that part of the exposition, I don't buy anybody who's been caught up to the heaven and comes back and writes a book on it. Just because of that verse right there. Now, you know, and I've shared that with you before, that all the books of anybody who's been to heaven and returned to heaven, those are all called New York bestsellers. And if you want an uh, article to go read on that, go read Tim Challey's article on that. Listen, no one has ascended into heaven except he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus Christ, who descended from heaven in the incarnation, who is the Son of Man. Look in your Bible over at John chapter 8. This is an important point because he's establishing his heavenly origin. In John chapter 8, in verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For look what he says, I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Now, it doesn't say that he came down, but you get the language there in 42 that he came from God. I came not on my own accord. Okay, what? These are just strong statements. Look over to John chapter 13, beloved. John chapter 13 and verse 3 there. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. 
And so, beloved, he is the the true bread. I could go on, look over at chapter 16 and verse 28, and we'll certainly see these in the weeks to come. He says, I came from my Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to my Father. He came from the Father. Look over at John chapter 17 and verse 8. He said, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you and that you believed and they have believed that you sent me. Listen, let me say this as you look back to John 6. The physical manna in the Old Testament was but a shadow of the true bread that comes down from heaven who is the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, why is that so important? Well, look back at the text. It's so vital. Look what it says in verse 33. For the bread of God, look at it again. Can you read it now with clarity? For the bread of God, now remember, back up in verse at the end of 32, but my father gives you, now it's interesting that Jesus said the true bread from heaven. In other words, the Old Testament was just a foreshadow of the true bread, and my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. Now verse 33, for the bread of God, and then he puts it in a person, is he, Jesus, who comes down from heaven. And this phrase, look at verse 33, and he gives, I love that phrase, life to the world. Beloved, this is an astounding truth. Just for a second there. He gives Greek language present tense. And by the way, I don't, I don't often like to quote that with you, okay? Because it's not that I'm smarter. But when I talk about theological education, our passion here is for a group of men who can know and declare the word of God with accuracy and precision. So at some point... This has got to become part of our future vision. And maybe in the days and years ahead, the ministry fair will also include some aspect of that. But you'll note here in 33, it's in the present tense that it gives life to the world. Okay? In other words, it surpasses physical manna, Old Testament, which would only sustain the Israelites for how long? A meal. Okay, a meal. In fact, if they didn't eat the portion that day, it what? Do you remember that? It's spoiled. So here he says, Jesus is the true bread who gives life, not just for hours, not just for a meal, but he gave and gives life that they would never become hungry again, that they would never thirst again. So Jesus is the true bread who gives life spiritually, eternally. In fact, look down in your Bible. Let me just point this out to you. Verse 35, we'll look at it again. He said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of what? Life. I am the bread of life. Beloved, let me just say it this straight to you. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no spiritual life. Oh, there's people living today. Oh, there's people walking about. But true joy and true happiness is only found in Jesus who is the true bread of God, who is the very bread of life. Look at verse 40 in your Bible. 
It says there, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have what? Eternal life. There it is in verse 40. Look down in your Bible at verse 47. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has what? Eternal life. Over and over again. Look down at verse 50 in your Bible. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not, what? Die. It's the opposite. He's brought himself in the incarnation. He is the bread of life that the one who believes in him will not die eternally. In fact, look at verses at verse 51. I am Jesus said, the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live, how long? Forever. And the bread that I, he says, will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's going to die. He's going to die on our behalf. Look at verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Over and over and over again, beloved, this is the description. Certainly as our country changes, it popped into my mind even last night, which it usually doesn't, the declaration of independence that we are promised life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Not this kind of life. The only life there ever is is bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you come to know him as the bread of life? Have you begun to live or are you like the 7 billion people, so many of them on this earth today, looking for purpose, looking for the pursuit of happiness, looking for life, liberty, and that pursuit, not finding it, never becoming satisfied. And Jesus says, listen, I am the bread of life, that the one who comes to me will have eternal life. You say, well, how does that happen? How do you get that life? Well, Better have the answer to that question, right? There's only one way to get that life. You say, where is it, Scott? Well, it's there in the text, of course. It's in John 6. Look at verse 56. He says it in a a unique way, and we'll come back to this in the weeks to come. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, do you see this word? Abides in me, and what? I in him. The, the, the way you get life is to abide in Christ. And as you abide in Christ, he abides in you. You become united to Jesus Christ. You say, well, how does he give life? Well, look back at John chapter 5. Let me just show you this. Okay, we've touched on this in John chapter 5. He says in verse 26 there, for as the Father has life, what does it say, in himself. In other words, nobody gave the Father life. You know that. The Father has life. The Father has always existed. There was never a time when this world was when the Father did not exist. 
there was never a time in the universe, in all of the world, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did not exist. In fact, no one gave them life. They have life, it's what it says there, in himself. And then look at 526. And he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And so God has life in himself. The son has life in himself. And as part of the Trinity, no one gave them that life. They have that life because they're God. But look back at 521, where it says there in John chapter 521, for as the father raises the dead, you see this, and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom He will. In other words, you have life because you abide in Jesus Christ. He is the source of life. He is the giver of life. And there is no spiritual life apart from Jesus Christ. Beloved, the world, myself included until I was 14, apart from Jesus Christ is spiritually dead. Oh, there's 7 billion people alive, but until you find the Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead. And so if you're here this morning, you say, well, what needs to happen? Well, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. John chapter 3. I mean, the, the awful truth is to not have life in Christ is to have the wrath of God abiding on you in John 3.36 and to be judged even now. And so he's the one beloved who gives life. Now, what's fascinating here in John 6, he doesn't just give life to one group of people called the Israelites. You say, well, why not? Because that's not what the text says. Look down at the text. It says there in verse 33, for the bread of God, defining it as he who comes down from heaven and he gives life to the, what? To the world, (laughs) He gives life to the world. He gives to all without distinction. In other words, the scope of this life is the world. It's all mankind. Now, that doesn't mean that all go to heaven. We understand that. But the gospel goes forth. So when you hear about that with Rome today, you want to tell other people about Christ. You want to go to Uganda and tell other people about Christ. You want to tell uh, the country of Albania about Christ because the gospel that's for you in the Central Valley is the gospel that's good in Mexico, is the gospel that's good in Peru, is the gospel of a man that we just sat down with last week from Dubai and all that God's doing there in Dubai, it's for the world. You remember Jesus said in in first. In John 1, 9, he's the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He didn't just come for the Jewish people. Remember when John the Baptist laid eyes on Jesus Christ, he said, behold, you know it well, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, what? Of the world. For God, John three sixteen, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so here he is as the true bread. And so they respond. Look at verse 34. They said to him in verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. 
And so that leads, finally, from the demand for a sign, the development of the Scripture, to the third declaration, the disclosure of the Savior. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He discloses himself in what has to be one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. He said, I am the bread of life. There are seven I am statements. I think you know we covered that a couple weeks back. This is the first of the seven. It is a declaration. It is a disclosure of who Jesus Christ is. You say, well, what does that mean that he's the bread of life? Well, you got to come back next week, okay? Um, We're going to look at that next week and pick it up because our time is up today.